So Justin is the founder of Tab Games. He is the creator of Samurai Slaughterhouse, a game developer in Los Angeles, and he's on the Homeroom Podcast. This is pretty big. He is the first game developer and, frankly, the first individual in the gaming industry uh, to come on the program. So he's got some phenomenal insight into exactly what it takes to be a developer, how the business is changing, and some of the things that listeners can do themselves if they want to get involved. So, Justin, thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the program. Oh, definitely. Thanks for having me on. Always uh, excited to talk about games and technology. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, well, let's start off with that first question on the list. It's a bit of a primer question, but what exactly got you interested in the space? And I guess going back to when you were a kid, your childhood, if you can recall moments that kind of influenced your uh, decision to go down this route, what were those things? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like you can imagine, of course, playing video games. I had the the regular Nintendo, playing Mario on that, loved it. And then outside of family computer, always like I remember the first one we had didn't even display different colors. It was just shades of orange. So I loved playing there. You had to pull the DOS prompt. You could play like Pac Man. And but yeah, it was always a blast playing like on DOS. There's one game called NetHack. I still play it to this day. It was like a roguelike and just blew my mind. And I was like, oh my god, I love this. So. Really, it was something I always wanted to do. I always loved creating things. So, <laughs> there's some people I've interviewed where they like deconstructed, rebuilt their computer. They were trying to. They're like they were very technically savvy. It was very intuitive to them how how these things worked, and they figured it out quite quickly. W- was that something for yourself, or was it a lot of you did it for a little while, stopped, went back to it, that kind of thing? Yeah, so as a kid, I always um, yeah, I was definitely into pulling apart stuff, I'd always, you know, break the family computer. <laughs> Usually you'll be able to fix it. Um, but yeah, like, especially when I was a kid, I had asthma, so I couldn't really go outside always. I would get, like, crazy allergies, so you'd be stuck in the house and always be making things where there's, you know, drawing comic books or, you know, opening up level editors on games or just finding any way I can do to, like, you know, make my own stuff was always what I was looking for. Is it, can you recall a particular thing that you built that you look back on fondly when you were younger? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, a couple of, like, I used to make all kinds of, like, Pokemon fan games. I used to one called Pikachu's Adventures. And they were just, like, weird little platformers that found, like, Pokemon sprites I could use online. And then I made, um, with RPG Maker, I made, like, a Pokemon-type game called, like, Bobo Buddies. And it, it was, with RPG Maker, it was really limited at the time, but I was actually able to program a system where you were able to, like, capture the monsters and keep them in a computer system just like Pokemon, which is... You know, at the time, no one was doing anything like that in RPG Maker. So I thought that was one of my favorite projects. This is really was the first one that got me thinking like really deeply about could, could logic. You, and could you break that down? Because like, even for someone ways. like myself, RPG means role-playing game. But when it comes to like the dynamics of the code in the game and actually how you format everything, does that change from game to game? And I mean, maybe you can talk about how you actually built that first thing that you were able to play yourself, that you were able to show to other people. Like what were some of the questions that you maybe asked yourself? Like, how did you figure it out so easily? So with, um, so some of the engines I started with is the click and play, which is one, you know, for kids is making games and it, it's simple to, to get into it, but it's kind of one of the things, the more, the more you're, uh, the deeper you want to get into it, the more complex it'll get, the more unique things you want to get. So it had kind of simple things like you can easily drag like a character in and add a controller and make them like jump and walk around. But then, you know, as you started wanting to do more complex things, that's where you had to 
kind of come up with logic, you know, when, when this object touches this, this is what happens. You know, that's at, at the most basic level. And then with RPG Maker, it was a similar one. It was kind of, if you wanted to make like a Final Fantasy clone, like a Super Nintendo Final Fantasy type game, that's what it was built for. It was pretty straightforward to do that. But then you're able to use logic where it would check things like, um, you have something called a Boolean, which is marked true or false. So you can, that could be anything, you know, as a character, like, you know, talk to this person or do they have this object in this inventory and kind of going, you know, checking all these various things, you know, you could store numbers, things like that. You can end up, you know, doing you can see the smile on my face. This is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's just a blast. Like with the, uh, the, like for instance, that Pokemon type clone that I made, like the way it worked is like when you're in combat, like you have these items that you use and it would check like the health of them and it would add put a little bit of random numberness in there. See if you captain it, if it did, then it would add like a an item into your inventory that was invisible, but it had like a number attached to it. So when you went to the computer and checked for that number and made sure like it matched to a specific character. So yeah, it was just a lot of logic like that. And even though, like with RPG Maker at the time, you didn't actually type in the code. You would kind of just click these little panels. So it'd be like, if this, else this, you can just kind of plug everything in. But that's still kind of the same logic you use in your writing code. So, you know, definitely starting out with editors like that makes it zero. When people are first starting out, they can kind of, you know, not have to worry about like the syntax, how to type things, um, but still get the experience with logic you kind of grew up as all this technology was coming out simultaneously in some way. Was that like advantageous to you? Like dead mouse was talking about the fact that when he started electronic music, it was at like the very, very beginning. So as plugins, VSTs, different kinds of software came out for music production, it was almost at the pace at which he was learning. So he kind of, from a first principle standpoint, understood everything. And as a result, he was able to, create this like really unique music. And the reason why he was able to is because he understood everything that actually went into sound creation, sound design, the type of software that it actually takes. Is there a similar similar parallel that can be drawn with kind of your experience in game development or is it a little bit different? In a bit. So I've been doing it as like a hobby. So I'm like 35 now. Uh, I started doing it as a hobby. I was probably like nine or 10. But, you know, again, it wasn't like, you know, Unity. It wasn't these big professional games. It was these little you know, fun projects I was making. And a lot of those principles have stayed the same over time. Like they haven't changed recently, but, you know, to actually to what you're saying, what has like helped me, you know, kind of be more, you know, modern with the technology is um, when I picked up Unity is all thrown at the same time I started picking up VR and that's when all these, you know, things were coming out. And in that case, it definitely was, um, you know, advantageous for me to kind of get into it, start taking it serious at that time because of all the new technology coming out, the new ways of doing things, um, it's just a good time to be learning because there's, you know, if you're, if you're stuck in the old ways of doing things and you're not going to see like the new light, the new ways of doing things. So it's just good to be, you know, at the start. I mean, I guess VR has been around for a while, but now it's kind of become like a commercially viable thing where there can actually be, you know, users and money made and hardware, the actual games that are actually playable and not just, you know, tech demos and make people motion sick and make too many. Um, for instance, like, you know, UIs, menus, that's kind of like the big thing around VR. There's not really like a specific way, like this is how everything should be done. So that's what's kind of cool being at like the beginning of it. You can see all the new ideas, which was kind of similar to how it was like in the you know early 90s and stuff, all the new games were coming out or when there was the leap first made to 3D, like there wasn't really specific ways to do it. Even just things we take for granted now, you know, controls using two analog sticks. Like you go back and play, you know, 
uh, like, you know, Nintendo 64 games like GoldenEye and Spectre, like, oh my God, this is so hard to control. So I think VR is kind of in that phase right now too, where it's, it's still kind of fresh. There's not like a specific right way of doing things. So it's a good time to jump into it. The second question that I had was, actually related to that comment but if you're someone that's starting out someone like me maybe you're non-technical but from a fifty thousand foot view you've got like it's it looks so cool and you at least want to get your feet wet and figure it out maybe maybe i go down the route you do maybe it's just a hobby but but where should i start so there's the first step is definitely to pick the game engine there's a lot of politics going around about this especially with unity's you know crazy like policy changes recently and now they kind of fix their mistake but um all that stuff aside i personally really like unity i think it's good because um it's pretty straightforward and it's just the engine with the most amount of resources out there so if you're you know you can't figure something out or you need a tutorial to do something um really great chance you're gonna be able to find it on unity for unity and it's going to be really easy to find uh and there's a lot of good resources um udemy is like a good website has like a lot of tutorials um, if you don't want to invest, you know, you don't have, you know, 50 bucks to invest on a class, you can go on YouTube, find tutorials. Those are a little bit more time consuming because there's a the person like, you know, pitching their channel and stuff. So you have to kind of get through that to get the actual information. Um, there's another one called Zenva Academy. I like that really good short, straightforward tutorials. But yeah, I would just recommend, you know, pick the engine you want. If it's Unity, you know, go dot Unreal, whatever. Um, my recreation is Unity, but you can even try different ones. You know, just pick one, download a tutorial, and just follow along. Like, if you follow a tutorial, even not knowing anything, you can have a simple little game made in, in a weekend. Is there a game that you recommend people start off making? Because perhaps there's some games that look easy to make, and then, like you said, you look at the code, there's so much more going on than it seems. What, what would be a good first project? I would say anything physics-based, because the engine will handle it for you. Um, you know, either 2D or 3D. I always do 3D, so I think it's easier to find assets. You don't have to worry about, you know, animations and stuff. It's easier to apply them. But, you know, you can just make a simple 3D platformer. Like the first tutorial I did for Unity had one where you had a character and you're jumping around grabbing coins. And I kind of changed it up a little bit and had one where you're a character and you had to push a ball through like obstacle course and get into a hole. So anything physics-based like that's really easy to do. And you can add a little bit of UI, you know, a high score or whatever, things like that. It's just a good, really good, like, learning process. Are there, like, different kinds of plugins or additional softwares that might be useful to have on top of them? Or, you know, would you say people are getting a little bit ahead of themselves? Like, just figure out the engine first. So definitely the first thing you want to do is figure out the engine, figure out the basics, just make a small project like that. And again, it doesn't have to be, a, you know, a giant game. It can just be, you know, something you're making a weekend to play around with it. Um, you know, once you are kind of comfortable, you know what you want to use. There are a lot of like templates and plugins. Um, if you're using Unity, you can go on the Unity Asset Store. Unreal has a similar store. And you can actually download things that will do a lot of the work for you, um, which is great when you're starting off and it saves you a lot of time. Once you kind of get more into it, you'll probably end up not in building your own systems. But it's definitely a good way to get started and boosted. Uh, I would also recommend keeping an eye on Humble Bundle, you know, whether you want to make games or really make anything, because they'll have like, these crazy deals where you get like a thousand dollars worth of software for like 30 bucks or something like that. And sometimes I'll pick up stuff, you know, music production, video production. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to use this, but I may need it one day. So it's good, just have, you know, a good like library of things built up, whether it be sounds, models, animations, all that. Super cool. Just out of curiosity, are there like any communities people should look at? Or I know you mentioned YouTube channels and, but like Reddit, Discord, are there any that you've found? 
particularly useful over the years? Um, I would say just kind of building up a good community of your own is what I've done, you know, kind of going on Twitter, following all the game developers, the people that are making things similar to what you want to make. And, um, you know, and, and likewise, vice versa, always, you know, share what you're making. Even if it's just in progress, we'd love to share your progress. People will follow you. And then uh, you kind of build a community that way. And it's good for people to know people personally. So when you're like, oh, you know, I have this problem, like they're going to be kind of invested in you, in you a bit, you know, as a person. So they'll be like willing to give you that advice of the lens that you need. Usually you don't need to, to send them your whole project to look at, but um even among like close friends, we are going to give each other access to projects. We always find mutual NDAs. Uh, it's always good just to keep everything writing on paper, especially because, you know, usually your project is something you've spent, you know, years on all your life savings. So it's always got to protect yourself. Yeah. <laughs> can, you, can you touch on that a little bit? Because I think that's actually a very smart, but like fair way of going about it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, mutual NDAs, it's something that it, it's not really... Um, you know, there's no 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 money necessarily money exchange anything like that. Is basically some signing something on paper saying you know, I'm not going to steal your technology, and uh, it, it, usually you, you, it's kind of agreed upon this anyways. But you always just it's always good to cover yourself. And also, if you ever are going to do contract work, bring on contract workers. Always good to put everything in writing, not just because of the trust thing, but just so everything's clear. There's never any disagreements. Like, hey, we don't have to fight over this. We we have it agreed upon ahead of time. So. You know, even if it's someone you're friends with, it's always good just to put everything in writing. When it comes to like the future of game development as well, I'm I'm curious, just again, more of a broad question, but where do you think it's going? We saw the release of uh, Lex Friedman's interview with Zuckerberg. I think that shocked a lot of people at far at how far VR has come. In your opinion, is that the new frontier? Has the new frontier been built yet? Is there something that like we're unaware of the general public? What, what's your kind of take on it? So I definitely think, I mean, that was, that was definitely a good, like, demonstration of the technology, especially the face tracking. It's actually not anything really super, super new. It's been um, actually done for a while. Um, Briella Garcia, she does a lot of this stuff. The AR where she'll, you know, 3D scan someone's face, then use her face to, you know, make it to do deep fakes and things like that. So I'm not sure if that's really going to make it too much into gaming. I could be wrong. Maybe people want everything to look photorealistic, but I think... A lot of the reason, you know, people play games is it has like a unique kind of out there look as opposed to it being, you know, kind of realistic representation for people. But I think it's, uh, if, if anything, that would be like an evolution of, of the art. I don't think it would necessarily change games the whole. Once again, Zuck is not the first person to do it. It was someone else. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that technology's been around for a while. I mean, if, uh, you can see, there's, you can actually probably go on Snapchat and find Snapchat filters where someone made that and you can just point on your face and pretend to be, you know, like Bill Clinton or something like that. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Because I sent it to a couple of people. I'm like, this is insane. And then you're like, well, actually, it's kind of been done before, like multiple times. It's pretty cool the way they're integrating it, though, because as far as I know, at least it hasn't, no one's thought to kind of bring that technology together in the way that he has to use it as like a kind of a virtual phone call type program. So even though the technology is not new, I think the novel way that he's thinking of using it is is pretty revolutionary. You know, people, especially if you're speaking to your loved one or something like that, you may want to be looking at them and not, you know, an anime representation of them or something like that. Just as kind of a philosophical question, I'd sent you that video of the, the, I believe it was a South Korean media company. And as part of the documentary, they did a segment where they hired this VR company. 
for them to reconnect with her her dead daughter and wasn't the most realistic but we can both imagine what that'll look like in 10 20 50 years even so is there something to be said that like game gaming in a way is going to transcend the entertainment medium and kind of become this you know holistic thing that is part of a lot of different kinds of segments of our lives beyond just like i'm going to take a break and go on my playstation yeah absolutely i think it's gonna do a lot of good for a lot of people we actually it's funny a while ago me and a couple of developers actually had a discussion about that and we had kind of mixed feelings none of us thought it was like you know a bad technology but i was like well personally i wouldn't want to put myself through that emotional practice of seeing a loved one in VR. But another person that lost their brother, he had like the complete opposite. You know, he was like, that's, that would be the dream. That would, you know, that's why, I was, you know, I'm in VR to make things like that happen. But yeah, I definitely think it can work a lot of amazing miracles. Um, I don't know if you caught this article, but there was one, um, there was a young girl that she had a terminal illness and she was going to pass and they were throwing her like a, a mermaid birthday party. And so a bunch of developers um, got together and actually made like a mermaid experience for her to go into kind of as like a, a make a wish type thing. So that made oh like, yeah, that stuff's crazy. Yeah, I would just love, to, and I, I got to help a little bit. I was unfortunately really busy at the time, but I got to kind of send them a few assets and tips. But uh, yeah, like I, I would love to just do more stuff like that because it's, it's really cool. Like what it, what it can do for people can be, yeah, like you said, a lot more than just games because it really is, uh, you know, puts people in all their experiences, people that can't travel, can't see loved ones, or they, you know, if they're bound, they're homebound, and they always want to see Paris, you know, then they can see it, you know, experience that. Exactly. But do you, th- do you think a lot of people, and again, not to suggest that this is a new mindset in the industry, but do you think with, it seems like tech and the advancements are only accelerating, like, do you think people are really, again, kind of rethinking what is possible in this medium? Yeah, definitely. I do think so. That there's And one of the more important things is a lot more people are seeing what's possible. There's a lot more eyes on it. It's actually getting out there. Because, um, you know, some of the people who are into the industry for a while, they, they knew this kind of thing was possible. And some of it, you know, maybe the tech wasn't quite there, or even if it was just, you know, no one knew about it. So it's really exciting that people are getting to hear about it now. They're getting excited about it. And that means, you know, more money is going to be put back into it. It's going to be kind of a loop. It's going to keep growing. Uh, but it is ex- definitely an exciting kind of being. We, we see there being that interest and it accelerating. And that's what's exciting, too, that it is getting away from being just video games. And people are seeing really the more practical side of it and all the different uses it has. Right. Absolutely. And then do you, what do you, what's your opinion on consoles? Like, do you think consoles are going to remain the same? Do you think they're going to go more of a, like, virtual reality, augmented reality route? What's your kind of opinion on that? So my dream, and I don't know if this will happen, would be, um, is if you look at like consoles, they're basically almost like, you know, PC powered right now. The only thing that, the reason they're not VR consoles is because there's no VR attachment. I mean, I guess they have the PSVR too, and that's doing all right, so. The dream would be for, I was like, well, I'm about to explain it already exists. But yeah, the dream would be for that to be more mainstream where, you know, maybe if Microsoft got involved and there was like an Xbox or a Sony type thing where they each had their own, you know, VR support on their home console, that would be the dream. Uh, but right, you know, I, I think it's definitely going that direction. Another direction I do see it going in um, is more more towards like portable consoles, handheld, handheld consoles. Like we see like the Switch are doing really well. Um, I know the Steam Deck did well. And, you know, if you look at mobile phones, this is actually the biggest gaming platform. 
we don't, we don't, we kind of discount it, but mobile phones are actually the biggest gaming platform of all of them. Like it passes consoles, like PC, everything. So. Let, let me ask you this question. So question number four, um, what, what is something that's more counterintuitive about your job? Like people think it's one way, but it might be a different way. Ooh, that's a good one. So there, there's a lot of things. I mean, one of the big confusion or mis, mis, uh, things that people get wrong about VR is kind of how much money there is in it. They think, uh, you know, if you make a popular VR game, you're like a millionaire. And there are definitely some that are out there. But uh, yeah, that's what that's what kind of makes it magical, though, right now that it is like kind of the smaller industry where, you know, if you are able to release something on a small team, not spend a lot of money, you can make you know, you can, you can support yourself and maybe support a small team, but even just a, a team of 20 is like costs a crazy amount of money to make. And there's not like a lot of money to, you know, necessarily get that back. So that's why a lot of people would, they complain like, Oh, we're not seeing these really big, you know, full size games. And they think it's just because developers only want to release tech demos. But in reality, we want to, we do want to release you know, bigger things, but just the money's just not quite there yet. Do you think venture money has really impacted that? I think it may in a way, but not in the way people expect. So, but in general, like with VCs, they're kind of um, goal. They're kind of playing the lottery when they invest. They kind of invest in the more wild out there ideas, like the swinging for the fences stuff that has a kind of high risk. But if it does, you know, succeed, it's going to have, you know, crazy amounts of profit. So kind of the middle of the line, like I'm just going to make a normal game and, you know, it's a normal game like the other games out there, but, you know, it has like twists or whatever. They're not really looking into funding those. Or we're looking into the kind of, you know, oh, we're going to have like this crazy giant world with all kinds of, it's run by AI. And it kind of goes for those swing for the fences ideas, which, you know, most of them won't succeed because they are kind of a little too grand of a scheme where they're just kind of too obscure of an idea. But they're kind of betting on those those one or two that actually are going to succeed. So I think that'll change in a way that we will get, you know, a few novel technologies out there and like, you know, things that may advance like, you know, the industry as a whole. But I don't think it's really gonna change the the regular average, like, you know, game developer just wanting to make, you know, normal games. It's kind of more of the uh the people that have these these big grand ideas and <laughs> be more help than venture venture companies. What is what is the end game for most developers then? Like for yourself, if if everything goes perfectly according to plan, like where do you want to end up? So generally, the best situation is either to uh, you know self publish your game or you know get a publisher with like good terms, and then um, you know you launch your game, and then hopefully the game is successful. You make enough money from that game that you can go ahead and you know either keep expanding that game if there's you know more money to be made, which used to be like you know Beat Saber and um, like pistol or games like that, um, or you know you take that money and you fund the next project and the next project you know help you have the money to make it even bigger and that's kind of the the thing where it snowballs. You know, the more successful projects you have, the more projects you can put into, the more you can invest into those projects. Okay, right. No, that does make sense. So, like for a game like Beat Saber, for example. Does does Facebook reach out to a developer studio and say, hey, we've got this idea for this game? Or does Facebook kind of, do they have like, you know, a, a business development team where their job is to kind of like, similar to like A&R in music, their job is to like scout the market and figure out like which game could be best for their platform. I, I, how do you kind of get exposure and stuff like that? So they do it a couple ways. And it's funny, they actually, 
the way you mentioned there is actually a thing that happens. They do have people that are out there and they'll go and, you know, see games. Like you usually look on like Reddit, places like that. Um, and they'll reach out to developers, depending on the level of interest, they may offer the developer, you know, money to fund it, to bring it to the platform. Um, or a lot of times they'll just offer other assistance, like they'll help with like testing and, uh, like UX feedback. So they'll play through the game and say like, Hey, this is kind of confusing. Like, why don't you try doing it this way? Or like, you know, this part's a little bit slower. Players are not going to understand this. So they'll, they'll offer different levels of support. Um, the only really more, but again, that that's, they have to reach out to you. You have to be lucky. Your game has to kind of have some kind of twist. that's going to stand out to them. The more, um, kind of like surefire, like direct route, if you're looking to get on their store would be to, find a publisher that has a good relationship with them that publishes games with them frequently and uh yeah you just kind of pitch your game to all of these publishers and see who's going to give you the best deal and go from there okay no that's that's super interesting because i know you've done some work with like pretty big people as well like would you be would you be able to talk about the stuff that you can discuss yeah yeah i mean as far as my game um it's you know i have support from meta um sony also sent me you know the psvr2 dev kit and like the ps5 dev kit and everything um that was a similar thing they just kind of saw my game online reached out to me and they're like hey do you have a dev kit i'm like no i've been you know on the wait list forever and you know that and it's like eight thousand dollars and they're like oh well let's just get you one then so like <laughs> and then um uh, there's a like you know, Chinese companies like uh, IGE, they're basically like the Netflix of China. Um, they sent me a headset and they also pay porting fees. So they, they paid me to localize my game in the Chinese. Or they, they helped the localization by still, you know, how to do all the plug in the technical stuff. Um, so I got my game ported to them. A couple other Chinese headsets, uh, Pico sent me theirs. Um, still working out with a deal with them. And then also uh, Nolo, which is another one and i'll put yvr there's all kinds of headsets being made in china right now because there's no quest there so everyone's trying to to fill in that market and and then how do how does like the business side of it work so you partner with one of these companies like a meta or um like a place or a sony and then the game goes on their store and then do you do you like my make money per download is there like an advance that comes in to sustain the developer studio to create more content so it all depends. They do it different ways. Um, if they're just sending you, like Sony, they just sent me the dev kits and stuff for free, and that's kind of the end of it. Other than that, I just get the regular terms. I mean, I have like a contact with them. I can, you know, reach out to for help. But otherwise, it's basically they're not charging me for any of that. Um, so they take their thirty percent off, and I'll get my seventy like normal. Um, as far as like the Chinese companies that are paying out people, they do it a couple of different ways. They'll either have like, um, some of them do like a porting fee, like they'll give you, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars and they'll take half of it from your sales and the other half is, you know, on them. Or they'll do, um, a resale type thing where they'll give you, they'll buy, you know, 10,000 units of your game, and like, you know, a few dollars a piece or something like, like three dollars each. So you get like thirty thousand dollars up front and the first ten thousand sales, like, are already made. So you don't make money off of that, but you make the money afterwards. And uh, those are good because those those platforms are small. You don't know if your game's going to do well. So you're like, you know, either way, I already got the money out of it ahead of time. So even if, you know, I don't get any sales on that platform, it was still worth my time, you know, porting it over. So and there's different deals a little bit on, but those are usually how it works. That makes sense. So in going back to potential listeners, we talked about if you're starting out in just development itself, let's say you're starting out in the business realm of development. Where where would you recommend people start? 
Yeah, so definitely one of the tips that I picked up from some, I heard from someone else say, I forget who, but it really like Bruce Chu is, you know, if you can wait as long as you can to get funding, because the more you have built, the more you have to show, the more you can you can ask for it, because the more, you know, one, one, they have more confidence that you're actually going to be able to finish the game and make it. And two, they have, you know, something to see that, you know, this is what we're paying for, you know, we're dumping money into, um, you'll, you know, be able to get more offers from different publishers. Uh, in general, if you can get private investors, those can usually be the best deals. It's kind of hit and miss. Um, publishers are definitely um, usually better than like venture capital because they'll kind of venture capital they'll want a piece of your company. And like I said, they're more geared towards those kind of outlandish ideas that are much more risky. Whereas if you go with a publisher, they're not they're they're expecting that it's probably going to make money and they make the deals, you know, according to that. So. You know, I would say wait, wait until you absolutely need that money to, or maybe not until the last minute where you're desperate. But when you when you only have you know three three or four months of runway, that's like a good time to start talking to them. Um, me personally, I kind of started um, on the game while I was still working full time, so there wasn't really any rush for me. So that's always nice if you, you don't have to worry about money. Uh, so that kind of just depends on what your financial situation is. Usually the, the best thing to do is to get like a prototype, something together that you can show someone to the publisher and then get the funding from there. Uh, because if you haven't already released games, then they don't have any way of knowing that you can actually make the game. Right. No, for sure. And okay, speaking of games, I had sent you, I believe it was, um, oh man, I think it was Unrecorded or Unrecorded. Yeah, yeah. This is just a, this is like a, a very selfish question, but that like we were talking about hyper realistic imagery and video. How do you get to that level? Like that just seems it seems so impossible in a way. It's actually a lot of uh, I mean they did a great job, and it's a lot of artistic things that they did to make it look realistic. Because if you look at the video really closely, when they do get actually up close on the objects, they do look they they look good, but they're basically regular fidelity video game objects. Um, but because they, they got a few things, run style, they got the environments really nice and dense. So there's a lot of detail. Um, so you're not really looking at any one object up close. And the other thing they did really well is the animation. So they have, um, you know, the camera moving around, like it's real body camera footage, which, you know, that alone really amps it up. And then they also added a few little filters. Like they have like the kind of fisheye lens and a little bit of vignette. So that kind of, um, you know, kind of makes it like you're, you're smoking, looking through a smoked glass, so to say. They kind of uh, reduce the quality a little bit that way, but because of that, uh, you know, it's like when you when you see a monster in a monster movie. If they, if they stop on it and they look at it, it's going to look terrible. But if if they just flash the light for a second, you're like, oh my god, that looked amazing. But they kind of pulled that off. They did. They took a lot of artistic things. They got that crazy camera movement to keep it from focusing on anyone object too long. So uh, yeah, they did a great job. But it was definitely. I mean, there is technology involved, but. It was, because the lighting in it was amazing, really good lighting, but we see that everywhere. But what really made that pop off was that little bit of an artistic twist they put on it to add that realism, especially in the animation. That's super cool. Um, curiosity question, like what, what kind of people actually need to, like who would do what job at some of these game game development firms? Like you've got designers, you've got the engineers themselves, but please, you've got way more expertise. So it really depends on like the size of the operation. Like in a lot of, like for my game, I did essentially everything. Um, there's some things, you know, if you're going to start making a game by yourself, that's usually the easiest way because trying to make deals, splitting things with people. Like I, 
you know, that can get really complicated. Um, the things you like, you can't get away with is, you know, programming, you're going to have to program. You can, you know, you could buy models, you could buy animations, you could buy music. Um, so, you know, definitely if you're starting off your one man shell, you're going to have to program and, you know, design it, obviously. Um, when you usually get into the, the other teams, like some of the ones I worked on, they folks around like 10 to 15 people. Um, so we usually be the person in charge and maybe a producer that kind of keeps everyone on track and others submit. Um, they'll bring on maybe like a UX designer that also, you know, design the UI and kind of come up with how it interacts. Um, like my, my job for the last one, I was technically like the engineer, like programming was primarily my thing, but because I have all kinds of different skills, I was also, you know, cleaning up animations. I made a few 3D models in tech art. So if you're wanting to go into an industry like VR, AR, something you're going to be on small agile teams, you probably are going to be taking on more than one role for sure. I guess for people who are interested in, in working in the industry and might just be, let's say a new grad, is there a labor shortage in a particular skill set right now? Or is there a lacking skill set that, you know, people yearn in the market, but people have forgotten about it? I would say definitely software engineering is probably the highest in demand. It definitely, you know, pays the best. Um, tech art is the really big one right now that people are having a hard time finding. And that's basically handling like shaders, material, lighting, things like that, making it look good in the engine. That's like the big one. Um, some of the harder ones to get into 3d modeling for some reason. I don't know. I see a lot of modelers having a hard time finding work, which is surprising. I think just a lot of people get into it. Um, you know, musicians, sorry, <laughs> they have a hard time too. I think that's just the, the number of them out there. I mean, I produce music too. And the only reason my music is in games is because I make the games and put my own music in. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I think if you, I mean, if you are able to, to do enough to just make your own games, it's really the best way to, to get it get started into it. And I mean, even if, if, you know, 3D modeling is your thing and, you know, or the, the 2D art your thing, whatever is your thing, you can just focus on that. And, you know, just learn enough of the rest to be able to get by on it. Um, I mean, when I, when I went to school for it was mainly art. And that actually served me really well. <laughs> um, because really what, what made Aggie stand out was the art style. So, you know, if, if you are having a hard time breaking, I would say do what you can to make your own project. Even if you have to you know, use a lot of plugins or team up with someone on Game Jams. But just the, the biggest thing to getting hired is getting stuff made, having stuff you can show. Because... You know, just having a degree doesn't really tell people much, but like, hey, look at all these cool things that I made, then they'll look at it and say, all right, I know you can make stuff. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. So you're based in California, um, just outside of LA. In our last call, we were talking about different, I guess, geographic frontiers for entertainment and the developer sector. Um, what's your take on that? Do you think there's more more hubs popping up? Oh uh, yeah, there's a few areas that are that are you know, kind of hub for it. I mean, Santa Monica has like the Snap headquarters there. Um, you know, Meta headquarters is up north, so they have like a lot of employees that are on the VR. You know, people kind of got laid off, so now they're looking for VR jobs in that area. Um, a few other places like you know Montreal, Canada is pretty big. There's a lot of studios there. Um, so there, there there's some, but. Um, a lot of the, the work is, you know, remote. A lot of these things are small. A lot of them don't even have a physical location. So, you know, if you aren't able to, to get out somewhere, just the more important thing is that you have a presence, you know, online that you have like that, that network. Because that, that digital network is a lot more important than your physical location in most cases. Right. What, what would you say is, 
I'll, and I'll give you the example of my industry, but like for, for hardware and software in the Bay area or Silicon Valley, I think a lot of people are focused on creating a big company, like a billion dollar company, as opposed to creating a company where people enjoy working. And obviously the two aren't, aren't mutually exclusive. Like you can do both and have fun, but I think there's one that takes a precedent over that. And I think if people change the paradigm a little bit, they would actually be more successful. They would actually be more likely to build a bigger company. Is there something similar in gaming in the developer industry? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. I, I, I know a lot of people work in AAA gaming, but I don't really, I haven't really worked in that. Um, but it's definitely just from talking to them, it's much more enjoyable to work like on small teams. Um, the pay is also better. Job security is usually better. Um, they're like, oh, what if the company goes under? I'm like, well, you know, your company doesn't even have to go under your job. So, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I mean, it, it, it's better too because the, the teams are more agile when, when we need a change made. You know, we just pop in there, we make the changes real quick so you can pop out things quickly. And I think that's really important in today's world because the tech is just changing constantly. Um, you know, there's always new updates coming out, new technology. So it's important to be able to be agile, be able to make those changes quickly, uh, you know, not have a lot of bureaucracy. You know, most companies I work at, you know, the CEO is in, in every meeting with us. We talk to him, we joke with him. He's there listening to the engineer directly, helping make the decisions. And it's, you know, a team effort. Um, whereas, you know, in, in bigger companies, the kind of people in charge are, you know, separated by, you know, so many degrees from the, people actually working on it. So I think it, it, may, it slows them down a lot. And I think it also causes a lot of important things to get overlooked. So I think having small agile companies is the, the way to go for emerging technologies for sure. Right. No, 100%. Okay, well, we got two more questions left. The first question is, if, if you could ask the gaming industry to start and stop doing one thing, what would it be? So I think the, one of the biggest problems right now is it's kind of a complex to program, but the, the biggest part of it is games are just now too expensive to make. Um, and it's not the problem that they're dumping money into it. The problem is because they're dumping so much money into it, they're super afraid of making mistakes. So they spend all kinds of money. I, I think it's something like 80% goes into marketing and like research. So they're, you know, it's going into researching what they think people will like, and they're all going to, you know, going on boardrooms and that's who's making the decisions, not the creative people. Um, so that's why we're getting a lot of trend in the industry, AAA, all the games are kind of really the same game, just skin because no one wants to take any chances. I would say instead of putting all their eggs into one basket, so to speak, I think they should spend less money on projects, but invest in more projects, projects that are more creative, more, have more unique ideas. And, uh, you know, maybe not everyone's going to be a hit. But there's going to be that, you know, those few that are going to just, you know, blow up like crazy. You know, you see things like, you know, Minecraft, um, Five Nights at Freddy's. Those started small, like, you know, almost no money. And they just, you know, blew up like crazy. Um, and then after those things blow up, then they can be built on and be built down to bigger things. Like now Minecraft is this huge operation of all kinds of crazy DLC. Five Nights at Freddy's is getting, has a film that's coming out. So I think they should invest in, in more things instead of dumping more money into fewer things. Um, actually, you know what? Sorry. I have two more questions. The one I'll ask first is, I guess like you, you mentioned Minecraft. Is there like a game developer studio or like a particular person in the industry, uh, that you look up to? Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, definitely John Carmack, of course, like the creator of doom, like 
he was such a badass. Like not only was his technology that he made revolutionary, but he ended up releasing it, you know, open access, public source, just for everyone to come in and make their, whatever games they want. That's why like in the nineties, we had all those, you know, Doom phones, you know, all the games with like the, the 2D sprite enemies, like in like the 3D-ish environment. And um, it turned out great for him. Like now Doom just sounds crazy amounts of copies because everyone's like modding it. And he said, you know, I can't speak to anything else, but I made my game open source. And it just, you know, <laughs> and then I became rich after that. So definitely he's one of the people I look up to. Um, Joseph Staten's, uh, he's one of the producers and writers at Bungie that worked on all the early Halo games. Of just, I think his like game design principles and ideas are just amazing. Um, a, lot, a lot of my games, Samurai Slaughterhouse, even though it's not a shooter, it's inspired by Halo. Um, the way they had, you know, different characters from different factions that would fight each other, like, uh, it just blows my mind. It's still one of my favorite games to play. It's the original Halo game. It's awesome, man. Yeah, that's dope. Um, okay, and then final question is like, what what is something that you're passionate about that you don't get asked about a lot? Um, well, that's a good one. Uh, well, definitely. I mean, worth mentioning is kind of like my music. I do like making music a lot. Like um, Samurai Slaughterhouse and Vicky Rampage both have like original soundtracks by me. Um, lo-fi and like drum and bass and that's always been like a passion of mine as a teenager you know i played in like little punk band i was playing emo music and stuff oh, that's um, sick. but it's just it's good cool too now that i you know i play music and people actually like get to hear it so that's kind of a nice little bonus of making games you get to kind of um, bring in all your different like creative um, backgrounds into it into like one one word form course yeah absolutely well this is where this is where i want to leave it but like where where can people find you if they're interested in talking to you how can they what, what's the best way to reach out so you can uh check me out on twitter which is um i guess it's called x now which i am uh at tab games three someone took tab Games, and that's why i remember three and then i am also on tiktok which is at tab underscore games um, or if you want to check out it or download any of my games without going off social media, you can check out uh, tabgamesvr.com. And uh, that has links to all of my stuff on there. And I think you also have a uh, Patreon as well, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Patreon as well. Patreon.com slash tabgames. If you want to go on there, you can get access to the latest builds of everything I'm working on. If you want to check it out, download all my music too. Awesome. And, and where can people find your music? Um, that is actually pretty much anywhere that you can find music on. So, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, um, Amazon Music is where I use. Um, just search, I, I want to say it's Tap Games or maybe Tap Music, but just search one of those things, you'll see it come up. I have the Team Samurai Slaughterhouse soundtrack from there, and I'm going to be putting the, the Hikura Rampage soundtrack up soon. That's awesome. Okay, we'll link to all this stuff. But um, Justin, man, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I, re I really appreciate it. This was a great conversation. Oh, yeah, definitely. I had a good time. Thanks for having me on. A lot of fun.